Good morning, Sleepy Town. I'm Bo Bartlett, and you're listening to The Art House. Art House Radio on 88.5 WCUG. Coming to you from across the tracks in beautiful downtown Columbus, Georgia. We have poet Nick Norwood as our guest today. Nick, welcome. Thanks. I'm glad to be here. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about where you're from and how you got here? Yeah, I'm from uh, uh, northeast Texas. My family are from little farm towns around Paris, Texas, just like in the movie, the Vim Benders movie. I actually went to high school in Texarkana, which is where my parents still live. Um, but uh, I ended up getting a Ph.D. in English. I had a job at a small school in Abilene, Texas, when I got out of graduate school. And then the creative writing job became available at Columbus State, and I interviewed for the job and got it, and I've been here ever since. So. And when did you come? 2002, okay. um, which also just happened to be right when the Carson McCullough Center was founded. And so even though I was not originally the director of the center because I was the creative writing guy at CSU, um, I worked closely with uh, Carlos Deuce, uh, you know, who was the founding director, and then with Kathy Fussell and then with Courtney George uh, in doing the programming, uh, got us into the Georgia Poetry Circuit, got us on the Southern Literary Festival, uh, and I was on every committee that selected the Marguerite and Lamar Smith Writing Fellow at the McKellar Center, mm-hmm. um, except one. And in that one case, I was in Oxford for the uh, for the semester, so I was not on the selection cr- committee. So anyway, I've been involved with the McKellar Center since I got here, yeah. and then I became director of the center four years ago. Mm-hmm. So great. Yep. So um, what does that in- entail? Like, I mean, when when you're you, you bring people to town, and, and who have who, who have you brought to town, poet wise? That you well. Uh, I brought a lot of great poets here, mostly through the uh, Georgia Poetry Circuit, which is a consortium of schools in Georgia that bring to the state three nationally known poets uh, a year. And the poets uh, are here uh, two weeks, one week in the fall, one week in the spring. And they go from school to school and literally uh, people have to go and pick them up at the school where they you know, did a reading the previous night, bring them to town. Uh, take them out to lunch. <laughs> um, they sometimes do other things, meet with classes and things like that. And then they give a reading that night. And then the next day they do it again. Somebody else shows up to pick them up and off they go. Uh, and so there's been a lot of driving, but that has been a great <laughs> thing because um, I have gotten to uh, spend a couple of hours in a car with poets that I'd never met before and get to know them. And, you know, inevitably it turns into poetry talk. Yeah, which is partly poetry gossip, but you know, but but a lot of really interesting poetry talk. Uh, for instance, uh, we brought to town uh, the Chinese American poet Arthur Z, and uh, I had never met him before. Uh, he's a great poet; really love his work. Um, and it was through a conversation with him that I sort of made a turn in my own poetry. I had uh, published two books. Um, but felt like I couldn't continue to do what I was doing. There was a lot of irony in that, and I didn't want that to be my default mode. You know, I could sort of feel like it's impossible to get through a day without a little irony, but that doesn't mean it has to be your, you know, your way of um, of, of responding to the world. Um, and um, he said something to me, which was basically this, that he felt that poems have to have a lot of pressure behind them. They have to be poems that are necessary for the poet to write. Mm-hmm. And it seems like such an obvious thing, but I guess it was partly at the time that we had this conversation when I was literally looking for what's my new direction, and I realized he was right, you know. And I immediately started writing a lot more about my own family and my uh, childhood, things that happened to me. My father was killed in a plane crash when I was seven. Uh, the moon landing happened a few, uh, the first moonwalk a few months after that. Uh, I got my first record, uh, Johnny Cash at San Quentin, uh, Mm -hmm. (laughs) for Christmas a few months after that. Um, I was in school in Texas when integration happened, and literally they started busing African-American kids into our school, and that was a a, a whole new thing, and to see that happen, to be part of that. Um, So I realized that those were sort of the 
the most important uh, things or some of the most important things that happened to me. And I started writing about them. But uh, Robert Morgan, uh, Andrew Hudgens, Amy Nizukamata Hill, um, Erica Dawson. I mean, we brought a lot of the most prominent national American poets uh, to town. And then also through things like our, our involvement in the Southern Literary Festival, uh, we've brought to town people like the writer Tim O'Brien uh, and the poet Natasha Trethaway, when she was the sitting poet laureate of the United States, we brought to Columbus. So, um, you know, yeah, it's been it's been a, a, a real uh, joy to get to do that and to introduce our students um, to poets like that, uh, and also to um, you know uh, to to serve as sort of the literary heart of Columbus because I feel like the McCuller Center has been that, you know, so. You're, you're sort of, um, you know, even with all of this activity, to, to, to my mind, with, with all the poets you've brought to Columbus and you're sort of the poet laureate of Columbus, <laughs> you, you, you still are, to, to my mind, are sort of, um, you're a hidden treasure. Mm. You're sort of, I think this is true sometimes for poets and artists, <laughs> that we are, um, <clears throat> uh, we might sort of fly a little under the radar. True uh, enough, yeah. If, if we... If we had chosen to be uh, rock stars or something, we, we might have a, a, a different fate. But, right, right. Uh, it, and I feel like that as, as a painter, and I don't know how you feel as a poet, but that we're sort of in it for the long haul. You know, we're, we're a, a rock star can be a, a very popular mass, have popular mass appeal, but, you know, then sort of be a flash in the pan and a few years later be washed up. But, yeah. but in theory, and hopefully with art and, and poetry, we can um, have a longer shelf life. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And and uh, I think we can have a longer shelf life, but also a better working life. Because you see these people who have a, a, a meteoric rise and they become really famous. And then um, because, you know, the, the world is always looking for the next new thing. Yeah. Um, those people who had that quick rise, then, like you said, they're washed up. Yeah. And uh, because uh, they, they really you know, um, achieved a certain level of fame, uh, it's never going to be the same again for them. And that, to me, that's sort of sad. I'd rather have a career that expands uh, over the, my entire working life and to feel like um, uh, it just keeps getting better, you know. And so uh, I think that that is one of the things that um, poets have, um, although it may be true that <clears throat> poets tend to... Um, have their, uh, I don't know, uh, their, their, their greatest level of intensity when they're younger. Mm -hmm. um, there is something that comes with uh, mellowing and uh, learning your craft better. Uh, and so uh, there are poets uh, to admire, like Seamus Heaney, who's a poet that I've you know, long admired, and Wayne Butler Yates and people like that, who um, had great uh, careers, you know, all the way up to the end of their lives. So, yeah, I think that uh, even though uh, it, it's, it might be good to be famous, although if you talk to famous people, it doesn't seem like it's so great, you know. Uh, it's great to get to do the work, but the fame part, you know, it, it wears thin pretty quickly. But I, to me, um, it's more important to have a lifestyle that is fulfilling. And, you know, when you're a young uh, poet, you think that publication you know, will be the great thing. This will make all this hard work worth it. You know, it's, mm -hmm. it really is, uh, uh, it's lonely and uh, it fills you with anxiety and you don't know if th that what you're doing is ever going to, you know, see the light of day. Um, but you think if I publish, then it'll make it all worth it. Um, and what you don't realize is that the actual spending time doing the work turns out to be the best part. I mean, publication is great, but it's not what you think it's going to be. Mm -hmm. And uh, it can be kind of weird. And some people um, treat you differently, not in a good way. Uh, so, you know. Before or after publication? After publication. Mm. First of all, when you're, when you're uh, uh, you know, trying to be a poet, and let's say you uh, study creative writing at college, and you start running around with a lot of other poets, and you're all in the same place. You're all wanting to make poems and to publish and to publish a book and to get some recognition. Um, and then you're, you're sort of in it together. Uh, and then if you publish, the other ones start looking at you differently. And you can see there's a little bit of envy and resentment. Mm -hmm. You know, it's really strange how people respond to you. 
sometimes uh, even people in your own <laughs> in your own family. Uh, you know, I've had uh, I've been lucky to have some poems on uh, Poetry Daily where they they select a poem that's been published somewhere else and then they run it and they tell you, you know, you want to here's your day. Um, you want to tell everybody you know um, to to check you out on that day, you know. So spread the word for yourself. Yeah. So you do. Um, <laughs> if you're like me, you create a big long email list and you send it. You get it ready to go. Mm-hmm. And then on that morning, so you you send the link to all the people on the email list. Hey, check me out on Poetry Daily today. And then you get all day long. You get you know responses from people. Hey, congratulations, great, lovely poem. Right. My mother says, thanks for the art lesson, Nick. <laughs> 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 so it's like bringing you back down to earth, yeah, you know? Yeah, yeah. Thanks, so anyway, you know, publication is not exactly what you think it's going to be. But what turns out to be uh, really interesting and, um, I don't know, heartening is that the actual work itself turns out to be so pleasurable. What you want is just more time and quiet, you know, to do the work itself. And uh, you hope that publication comes from that. But um, you you become to realize that uh, the most satisfying part is just to be able to do the work. So, but what is uh, success for a poet? I mean, I, I think maybe I know what success might be for a painter or an artist. I'm not 100 percent sure, but I mean, yeah. what what is that? What would that look like? Well, you know, I think it looks like uh, it's different for different people. I mentioned not Natasha Trethewey, and you were talking about hidden pleasure, uh, you know, treasures. Um, she's one of the most famous poets in America. And yet, a lot of people in her home state, you say Natasha Trethewey, they're like, who are you talking about? Mm-hmm. I mean, unless you're a reader of poetry and you're involved in that world, you probably don't know who she is. And again, she's one of the most famous poets in America. Mm-hmm. So you just have to accept that if you're a poet. This is this is it. You know, you have a small audience, um, but it's an audience that understands what you're doing. So it's a good audience, if you will. Um, so, but I think for a lot of people, uh, you know, there's first publication there's winning awards, there's maybe getting named to important posts like Poet Laureate. Mm-hmm. Um, but to me, uh, I think that, again, even more than that, I mean, I have won some awards, um, and I've, I've published in some great places, And um, but to so, me, the, 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 the better thing is to have people read a poem, and you can tell that they really responded to it. Uh, mm. by what they say, you know, or, or I had this happen kind of early in my career. I read a poem about my son, um, at a, at a reading and about two years later I was in an elevator and she said, Oh, I know who you are. You're, you're the poet. And she said, uh, the, the poem about your son eating the, the Russian novel. She says, I, I'll never forget that. I mean, that's what you live for. You know, it's not just that they realize that you publish poems, but, um, you, you, uh, they, they, they found a poem of yours that got under their skin, yeah. uh, and it's going to stay there, which is, you know, what Robert Frost says you're trying to do. He said, you're trying to write just one poem or maybe just one verse, or maybe just one line that gets under people's skin and they can't get rid of it. You know, that, that's mm-hmm. what you're trying to do. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, yeah, you've been published in, uh, all the, the, the great reviews, as far as I know, I mean, the, the Paris review and the Oxford American and um, I'm sure you have goals for others that, uh, so you've, you've been very well published and um, received uh, awards. So um, in terms of um, recognition, your, your relationship with recognition, I mean, it seems to be, um, um, you know, in terms of like ego, ego strength, like very healthy and aware of where, where you are in relationship to, to um, the, the strata of, of, What's, what's going on in the poetry world? Um, what what motivates you day to day? Like when when you when you and and what what's this spark that suddenly lets you know that a poem is brewing? Yeah, uh, I guess is that two separate questions? No, it's the same thing. Really, for me, it's um it's it's reading other poetry. I mean, this is what I try to tell my students all the time. You know, I'm somebody who has um, a poet who started uh, writing a lot about personal experience, and when you sort of get in that groove. And it's just like anyone else, you, for, for whatever reason, something sparks a memory. And then, but if you're a poet who's, who's working that sort of vein, you go, oh, that's a poem, right? And then you get excited about it and you start sort of, um, you know, trying to, 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 uh, to find the poem in there. Mm-hmm. But really, the thing more than anything else that makes you want to write poems is that uh, you read a poem and you think, God, that's great. I want to do that, you know? 
and um, you you get inspired to try to do that very thing. I mean, the great um, Georgia writer Flannery O'Connor, who's somebody who clearly is writing um, partly to sort of express her religious worldview, and she says that you know she says everything that I write is based on the idea of our redemption in Christ, and yet she also says that that's not the thing that makes you want to be a writer. What makes you want to be a writer is that you read other writers and you love it so much and you say, I want to do that. And I think it's the same with poems. I mean, that's what makes you want to be a poet. You read poems, you love them, you want to do this. Um, But also, just on a day-to-day basis, you run across this poem and you go, wow, man, that's it right there, you know, and that um, sends you to your writing desk. Mm -hmm. So... um, uh, I have this uh, other jo- Georgia poet that I really admire. I'm r- working on an essay on him right now. His name is David Bottoms, and he's been around for a long time. He won the Yale Younger Poets uh, Award in uh, 1979 for a book called Shooting Rats at the Bibb County Dump, <laughs> which is not a very poetic-sounding title, but it's a very great book, um, and he's just kept getting um, better and better. And um, he's able to um, write poems, I think, that... Um, you know, really haunt you, that stick with you, and that uh, are on the one hand so grounded and accessible, and on the other hand, um, if you if you really know a lot about poetry, you realize this guy knows what he's doing, it's, you know. It's already haunting me now, and I only know the time. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so... Get your mind off winter time You ain't going nowhere
heard I heard once that you were quoted as saying something to the effect of um, my biggest mistakes in retrospect have been um, luck in disguise or good luck in disguise or something like that. Yeah, it's true. You know, it's like uh, what is it? What does it mean? Well, I mean, <clears throat> you know, you can have some bad things happen to you. And uh, I've had some bad things happen to me, and oftentimes it was because of my own foolhardiness or whatever. And, uh, you know, your first response to that is like, you know, this is devastating. How am I, how am I ever going to get over it? Um, and then, um, but I have um, also found that you can respond to it in such a way that you say, okay, how can I, how can I turn this into something positive? Um, how can I change my life because of this? Um, how can I, um, you know, approach the world uh, differently? It's like they say in the stock market that it's time for a correction. Right. You know, these events can be a correction. And so you can make something uh, positive, uh, you know, happen as a result of that. Do you have any specific examples that yeah, you want to share? Yeah, I can. Well, I tell you, when I was a younger man, uh, I had some problems um, uh, alcohol related problems with the, the law. And, uh, so I spent some nights in jail and, uh, it's not a fun thing. And, um, I almost feel like everybody ought to experience that because it would change your worldview about a lot of things. And, um, one of the things that happens to you is that even though you may think, oh, well, I did this bad thing, but actually, uh, I'm not a criminal, but the police looks at you as a criminal and you feel it. That's how they treat you. That's how they respond to you. Um, and so I said, you know, uh, I can never let this happen to me again. And it changed how I behaved and it changed how I, um, approached my life and it made a, a real difference. One of the things that it, uh, made me do was to develop a uh, self-discipline. And I'm, I'm, I'm guessing that you feel the same way that if you want to be an artist, uh, you want to be a writer, self-discipline is something that you have to have uh, because uh, the world is not there telling you, oh, Nick, we must have more poems from you. Please write more poems. No, they're saying the opposite thing, right? They're saying we got all the poems we need, Norwood. You just go do something else. So the only uh, person who's going to you know, drive you to your desk and do the work is yourself. Uh, and if you don't have self-discipline, it's just not going to happen. So, uh, you know, that's one of the things that came out of that experience. And I feel like that has become uh, one of my strengths. So. Um, if you were going to give some advice for a young, uh, to a young poet or a young person wanting to become a poet or a writer or yeah. an artist or anything, yeah. what, what might that advice be? Well, I got some really good advice when I was in graduate school from the writer Ron Carlson. And he said to us, this is in a graduate working, uh, a creative writing workshop, and he said, I know what you're all thinking. You all want to be writers or you wouldn't be here. But you're thinking, I'm in graduate school right now. You're probably teaching a few courses. I don't really have the time to devote to it yet. But when I graduate, then's when I'm really going to, you know, dig in. He says, but the mistake you're making is in thinking that you're going to have more time then than you do now. You won't. You'll have less. Mm. And if you want to be a writer, the time to start is today. Um, and to uh, look at it as part of your life and to uh, make it, you know, you know, literally block off parts of your daily schedule to work on the thing that you say you want to do. Because if you really want to do it, you'll be able to do it. And if you find that you can't do it, then that's, that's telling you then probably you, you're not really a writer or an artist. And I found that to be absolutely true, especially the part about having less time now than I did when I was in graduate school. It's absolutely true. You know, the world just keeps mm -hmm. wanting more and more from you. Um, you know, uh, I've, I, I, my metaphor is I'm in the harness now. Hmm. You know, the world has me in the harness. <laughs> and so um, if you want to uh, pursue your art, you've got to uh, have the self-discipline to do it, and you've got to start today. So that's the biggest advice I can give. The other thing is what they always say, which is, turns out to be absolutely true, if you want to be a writer, you got to spend a lot of time reading, and you got to spend a lot of time writing. That's it, mm -hmm. you know. So do you have a uh, do you have a, a discipline in terms of your schedule? Yes, I'm a morning writer, and my discipline is to get up, do my exercise. I like to go for a run, uh, have coffee, and then... Um, go to my work. Mm -hmm. And the thing is that, 
you can really only write uh, two or three hours a day. Uh, I've heard, you know, different writers have different um, uh, rules for themselves. Some it's amount of time. Some is if for prose writers, it's often a number of words or a number of pages or something like that. For me, it's always been a amount of time. If I can spend two hours and I'm really working at it, then I can feel good and go on about the rest of my day and feel happy that I've that, that I put my time in. Um, one thing about it is I uh, I won a Pushcart Prize a couple of years ago, mm-hmm. and that led to me re- winning a residency at the Gentel Foundation in Wyoming. So I got to do that um, in uh, late August and September of last year, and I was there for a month, and I had nothing else to do but but write and read. And uh, it's just uh, amazing that not only are you putting your time in, but you're you're not even having to worry about well, I've got to, I've got this meeting later, I've got to teach yeah. this class, I've got to you know do whatever. Um, and it really helped me to push through and fin- finish my manuscript. Right. Uh, and um, you know the book that's coming out would not be uh, coming out so soon if it weren't for that. But but I think again you got the thing is you got to have the the discipline if you get that luxury of having a month where they say to you, you know Norwood we bring you here to do this thing, um, I think you have to make it your habit to go right to the work every day, and so yeah yeah I think that uh, gifts like that are not only gifts of time but they're also gifts of confidence. Yeah, it's true. Which we need. Yeah, absolutely. You need that affirmation from somewhere, and I, I mean really, that's the best thing uh, about publication. Is that some editor has read your stuff and says, "Yeah, we we want that," and it's that affirmation, you yeah. know. It's objective affirmation, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, <clears throat> well, speaking of which, you you have a new book. Yep. And uh, would you like to read a few poems from it? Yeah, let me uh, read a short. When I was talking about that, um, uh, that process of when you start writing about experience, how you remember for whatever reason something that happens to you, uh, and then you start thinking, hey, that's a poem. And, and this happened to me um, with this poem, Latchkey. Um, we used to have this term, I don't think they use it so much anymore, latchkey child. Yes. And it means that, you know, when mom started going to work, uh, and there would be no one at home when the uh, child came home from school, and so they were given a latchkey. I think in the South, we just call it a key. We did. Yeah, I just called it a key. It was under the brick. <laughs> right, right. I didn't wear it. Yeah. It under the brick. Yeah. Um, and the idea is uh, you come home and there's no one there. Uh, and that was a new thing for kids, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and because my father was killed and my mother worked, uh, I became a latchkey child. And my mother, who's a very practical person, uh, grew up on a, a cotton farm in East Texas. Um, she didn't make a big deal out of it. She just said, here's your key. Go home after school. Let yourself in. Uh, don't get into trouble. And that was it. And I really didn't think anything about that. I wasn't really scared or anything. I was like, okay. But I didn't uh, uh, appreciate uh, until the actual moment came what it was going to be like to walk in the house by myself for the first time ever and to know that I was going to be by myself for the next several hours. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, uh, it was a weird sensation. And one of the weird things it. about it is that I hadn't anticipated it mm-hmm. until the moment was there. Uh, and so um, that experience has stayed with me. And for some reason, it came to mind one day and I immediately started working on this poem. So here's the poem. Great. And I call it Latchkey. Remember the first time you let yourself in, stunned by the sheer silence of it all, the sunlight blooming on mute, blank-faced walls, and how you stormed then from room to room, blistering furniture and framed photographs with your hollering, commanding the sunlight to go away, go away, because you wanted to be alone. Remember how you yelled yourself dizzy, exhilarated and scared, and how eventually you dropped into your mother's chair and watched that same sunlight creep silently across floors, up walls, and let itself out. And so, uh, you know, that was one of the, just a little about the process. I mean, I focused on, um, you know, the first thing was the experience itself. And, uh, and I remembered the sunlight. It was a sunny day and the sunlight coming in. And I remembered uh, the main thing about it was to, <laughs> that I went around the house yelling. 
uh, because there was no one there to bother or to tell me to, to stop yelling. So I just, you know, I, I explored the space, as we say, right? Exercised your freedom. Yeah. And I went around yelling. But, um, you know, then you're looking for, okay, where's this bomb going to go? Mm-hmm. Um, and I liked that idea of uh, watching the time pass uh, um, uh, in terms of the sunlight, you know, the way it moves. Yeah, I think that, I mean, so many of your poems feel like that. They feel like uh, it's it's a whole life encompassed in a moment. And, and it's it's both nostalgic in a good way uh, of the past. And it's also brings you very acutely into the present. Um, and, you know, that that's where it is sort of those two things uh, clashing and combining like that sort of get a, a little, little lump in your throat sometimes for me when, when I, when I read your poems. Uh, well, that's it, a good thing. Thank you. It, 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 <laughs> I'm glad it, it's a true emotion that, that wells up. So um, it, it's a, a, a miracle that you can create such a thing. Yeah. Well, thanks. Um, what else? Well, okay. This was uh, something that was really fun from seeing your film, right? Which was so beautiful. It's so great to be from Columbus and to see it. Uh, presented in that way. It's a gorgeous film. It really is. And the, the images, uh, all of them, are just so uh, wonderful. And uh, I, I can imagine people from around uh, the country and around the world seeing it and go, gosh, I want to see that place. I want to go to that place. You know, So Columbusites should be proud of that. But one thing, one scene that was particularly uh, enjoyable for me to watch was um, a scene that you guys shot on Railroad Street. Uh, because it's such an out-of-the-way spot. And the reason I discovered it is because I commute to a main campus um, by bicycle, and uh, we have this wonderful um, trail, the, the Dragonfly Trail, that allows me to do it you know, on the rail trail all the way. Mm-hmm. But before that was completed, <clears throat> I had to sort of find uh, you know, sort of secret passages to get there so that I wouldn't get run over, you know. Right. And that's how I stumbled on Railroad Street. Railroad Street's not a very happy street, unfortunately. Um, But there are three palm trees in a row on that street. And to see them standing there and to realize that they must have been there a long, long time. Mm -hmm. No one planted those palm trees anytime recently. Uh, But at some point, someone, you know, decided they wanted palm trees there and they planted them and they're still there. Uh, and so, uh, there was something about that, that, well, again, I was like, you know, like I said, often, uh, for me, it's remembering things that happened to me, uh, you know, in my childhood or other times in my life that sparks a poem. Sometimes it's something that happens to me just on a, an everyday basis that I realize, Hey, that's a poem. So anyway, um, that's how this one came to me. Um, and the poem is called three palm trees on railroad street, idle under overpasses, Railroad Street runs east and west a quarter mile between lonely stretches of 2nd and 3rd Avenues, separating two possible, if not likely, crack houses from the burned-out husk of Julius Friedlander's wholesale warehouse, the faded sign painted on its red brick wall still advertising jute bagging and cotton waste a hundred years late. But between the railroad and street after which it's named, on a strand of grassless right-of-way, these three old sailors of the South Seas, raggedy, rail-thin, mop-topped beanpoles, bending at the waist as if stooped by age or rum, stand in a spaced-out row a couple hundred miles from Florida, paradise untended, I guess, as I'm about to pass on my bike, for upwards of forty years. They bring me to a halt, There is no one around, and what's around could not be sadder. A house whose front door is a blanket, a trash-strewn gutter, a dodge on blocks. Then these fellows, their fronds sooty, graying, and yet bringing me such dingy, delicious, unexpected joy, I have stopped to stare and forget about where I am, and consider how, instead, how, however they came to be, Three of anything make a row, and how what survives may bless by simply being here. Do you have uh, the 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 new book is Eagle and Phoenix? Mm-hmm. Do you have uh, is is the poem that's along the river walk? Is that that poem? Or um, it, is... It's part of a poem. It's become the third section of a poem called Eagle and Phoenix Dam. Um, 
Yeah, after I published my uh, my my previous uh, my, my most recent uh, collection before this one, a book called uh, Gravel and Hawk, I moved into the Eagle and Phoenix, and I love that name, Eagle and Phoenix. Right? It's kind of funny how Gravel and Hawk, Eagle and Phoenix. Suddenly, I got on this this bird thing and this this and that thing, you know, at the same time. And um, uh, you know, I was wondering because that that book Gravel and Hawk had a lot about my gra- uh, childhood and a lot about. Uh, the death of my father, but also a lot about my uh, family in East Texas. They were tenant cotton farmers. My mother grew up, you know, the daughter of a tenant cotton farmer. Um, and uh, I moved into the Eagle in Phoenix and Phoenix and started reading a lot more and learning a lot more about the mill culture. And one of the things is the people who worked in those mills were people who came off cotton farms. So it seemed like a sort of natural extension. So I started working with that idea um, which uh, I'm glad I've finished it now, but uh, it was almost like I had given myself an assignment. I don't think I'll do that again. I'm, that was, you know, that turned out to be uh, 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 dip, difficult, and it's taken me seven years to to complete this book. But at any rate, um, I started thinking a lot about that specific spot on the river, which is why Columbus is here because it was the falls that made them, you know, build the town here so that they would have power to drive uh, turbines to, you know, to power mills. I mean, that's why Columbus is here. Um, And also it's interesting that um, Native Americans have been coming to this spot for thousands of years because it was also a great place to fish for clams and other things, but also dangerous because of the current. Um, And, you know, they um, um, believe that there is a sea creature there uh, not a sea creature, a river creature um, called the tie snake. That is what sucks people under um, and um, causes them to drown. And people still drown there all the time. Um, and then also there's this interesting uh, um, fauna there. Uh, for one thing, there is the return of the bald eagle, which is an amazing thing, you know, because uh, I have read books on the bald eagle from the 60s. There were no bald eagles in Alabama. And now they're nesting in Alabama, you know, right across the river from Columbus. And if you hang around the river, you will see them. Um, And so you will also see all kinds of other things, cormorants, for instance, and, uh, of course, the herons. Um, And they're the people there who fish in the same spot. So anyway, and then there's the history of the mills. There's the history of enslaved peoples who laid this brick street right out here outside this window where we are. And there's the history of all of those people who left... um, uh, tenant cotton farms and sharecropper farms uh, and w- worked in the mill, which was a hard life, but um, gave them employment and um, sort of uh, gave this town a reason for being. So all that stuff, you know, was was stuff that I was writing about. <clears throat> and then right around that time, um, the sculptor, Mike McFalls, my colleague at Columbus State, um, was commissioned to create a public art piece uh, at that very spot. And to sort of deal with some of those same things. And because he had been doing a lot of things with text, um, he came to me and said, hey, well, you want to work on this project? And I was like, sure. And uh, it just so happened that I had been working on a lot of poems related to that. Um, so uh, as it evolved, we worked with the people who commissioned it, which was uh, Mark and Marlene DeBode Olivier. Um, and uh, uh, we, the four of us worked together. And I was able to adapt some lines from other poems that I was working on um, for the poem that ended up um, on the seawall of the Riverwalk. And it was just a great thing. You know, it's like um, when I was in graduate school, the poet uh, Scott Cairns told us in class one day, you know, what you're trying to do is inscribe your words on the landscape. Hmm. And so now I can say, well, there it is in Corten Steel. Absolutely. <laughs> so there you go. And if you're if you're walking along the Riverwalk, it's, uh, it's right where the island is. Uh, uh, along right it's right by the powerhouses and so i, I call the poem powerhouse um and it sort of ends with that but um uh, there's a poem in the collection um that begins the fourth section which is the section that is directly about columbus uh i won't read the whole poem it's a, it's a longish poem mm-hmm. um, called eagle and phoenix dam um, but the third and final section of that poem um it is the poem basically that's on the river walk which is now that you are here, amid crag and gleam, mist rise and vapor, dark jade frothing into white lace, 
Here where the rains come to gargle, spit jets of spray, sea herons creep, smokestacks peer through high windows, spirits sleep, spool and spindle, shaft and shackle, tie snake and eagle. Sit still as the old powerhouse and mind your moorings, the river roaring. So, um, yeah, I was trying to put in as many of the things about that about that place as I could. So. Beautiful. Thanks. Thank you. Uh, thanks for being here. We really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. It um, was fun. I, I, I want to um, to go out with uh, some music selections. That do, do you have any uh, favorite pieces? I know that you play the guitar. Right? Yeah, yeah. Do you play other instruments? No, in fact, you know, I would not even play the guitar if it weren't for our friend Andrew Zone. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, of course, Andrew is a very accomplished classical guitarist. And I met Andrew um, when I first came to Columbus because uh, he was in new faculty orientation at the same time I was. And um, uh, he told us uh, uh, all of his new friends in orientation he was going to be giving a recital and to come to his recital. So I went. And I saw him play, and I was just like, wow. I mean, you see him play, and you're thinking, I could never in a million years be able to do that. But um, I was at a party uh, one night a few years later, and this is after I was starting to hang out with Andrew a lot more. Uh, He's a little like Kramer. He shows up at my house, (laughs) (laughs) you know. But um, he he just picked up a guitar, and he was like a a living jukebox. We could name any song. any rock song, any punk rock song, any disco song, any any jazz standard, um, and he would just start playing it. Mm. And I realized, uh, you know, I'm 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 missing out on a great opportunity. He's at my house all the time. He could he could be giving me pointers. So uh, without telling him, I bought a guitar and I started taking uh, guitar lessons from another great Columbus guitarist, uh, Neil Lucas, who's a blues guitarist who who performs in this town all the time. Um, and uh, it's a great guitarist, and I, and I feel uh, um, uh, uh, it's, it's great, very satisfying to me that I have introduced Neil to Andrew, and they are now friends and sometimes um, play together, just jam together, because they both admire each other as guitarists. Um, and then Andrew came over and saw my guitar and was like, what's this? And I said, yeah, I'm going to take up guitar. And he says, oh, well, I think I'll take up poetry. And I said, <laughs> no, no, it's not like that. I just want to be able to, you know, be able to stumble through a Johnny Cash song or whatever. And so uh, he said, all right, let me see what you can do. So I was showing him my chords and things like that. And then uh, uh, when he comes over, he'll say, okay, let me see what you're playing, you know. And he'll say, you know, you should start doing this. You should start doing that. Here's a song you could play. This is how it is. Like he dumbs it down. All right, Norwood, (laughs) here's something I think you could play. And he'll teach it to me. And so a lot of the songs that I play are songs that Andrew has taught me just sitting around in my living room saying, you know, hey, try this. So anyway, it worked. But, uh, it, it, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm terrible. I'm never going to be any good. But uh, it's a lot of fun, and it's very satisfying. And uh, I feel like it's got to be good for my poetry uh, yeah. in indirect ways, you know. So, um, yeah, so I, I play guitar every day. Played a little bit this morning already. I'll play some more today. Um, and um, that has... Um, led me to appreciate um, a lot of acoustic guitars because I play steel string uh, acoustic guitar. I don't play classical guitar. I, I didn't even try that. Um, but I have become a lover of um, this uh, player who's unfortunately is dead now named Clarence White. Uh, he ended up playing for the Birds, okay. but he uh, grew up in a French-Canadian family called LeBlanc, and they moved to the U.S., and the father changed the name to White because they thought they'd get more gigs. <laughs> and Clarence just became one of the greatest flat pickers uh, in American history. They were on the Andy Griffith show, mm-hmm. and they were supposed to be these hillbillies. But it was actually them performing songs that they play. And there's Clarence with his acoustic guitar just, you know, wailing away. Um, and he ended up playing with, um, with the birds uh, before he was uh, killed by a drunk driver. Uh, actually, while loading equipment. So anyway, I love uh, Clarence White uh, tunes, and uh, he has a great tune that you can find on YouTube called uh, Mockingbird. Okay. That's a great one. Um, but anyway, any of those great um, um, birds, especially their, um, uh, their, their country rock songs, you can hear Clarence White playing on. 
uh, and playing the B-Bender guitar that uh, he invented. Um, I was telling you earlier, uh, my son, um, who has become a sort of vinyl hound like I am, uh, sometimes introduces me to uh, new music. And uh, although I knew who Nick Cave was, I had never really listened to him much. And my son gave me a Nick Cave album uh, for Christmas this year. It's called uh, uh, Push the Sky Away. And it has a song on it called Jubilee Street. And I just love this song. And one of the things I love about it, it's like the poems that, that, that inspire me is that it's so haunting. Um, the words and uh, the music uh, are, are kind of that after you hear it a few songs, you go around, you're listening to that song in your head all the time. So, uh, yeah, those are a couple of songs. Great. Yeah. Jubilee Street. Let's, let's hear Jubilee that. Street. Let's yeah. hear Jubilee Street. I got a 
beyond recriminations The curtains are shut The furniture is gone I'm transforming I'm vibrating Was that, was that Eight Miles High? Was that the bird? Eight Miles High. Yeah, that's one of their songs. They did an album called Sweethearts of the Rodeo. Sweetheart of the Rodeo. Um, and this is right when um, Clarence White and Gene Parsons became members of the band. And uh, Clarence White um, and Gene Parsons had invented this guitar <clears throat> called the B-Bender because they loved uh, steel guitar like you hear in country and western music. Mm-hmm. But they didn't want to have to pay another musician just to play steel guitar. And Clarence said, you know, I could almost do it if I just had one more hand. And, uh, <laughs> and so uh, they, they were playing around, and Gene Parson literally sat beh- behind him. No. And, yeah, and moved the B-string out of its channel in the nut. And then Clarence could bend it and make it sound like a steel guitar. And then Gene said let me take your guitar and fool around with it and see if I can figure a way to, to, to make it so you can do that, you know, uh, without another person. And so he did. He literally cut up his guitar, his Fender Telecaster guitar, and he made it so that Clarence could push down on the guitar strap and it would move that guitar, it would bend it, wow. and so that by just pushing down while he's playing, he could... <laughs> It's cra- it's a crazy thing. Who would come up with this? But the funny thing is, he was great at it. I mean, yeah. he was such a great guitarist. And now other people, uh, like famously Albert Lee, the British guitarist, um, learned how to do the same thing. And other guitarists, you know, made made B bender guitars yeah. out of their Telecasters. So if you listen to any of the songs uh, on, especially Sweetheart of the Rodeo, mm-hmm. you can hear uh, Clarence White playing his B bender guitar and making those uh, twangy. Uh, country western sounds wonderful yeah wonderful yeah nick norwood thank you thank you very much i really appreciate it and uh it's been uh, it's been a lot of fun eagle and phoenix it's a great book um i just want to uh say one thing uh about it. well i'm going to say a couple of th- things about it. it's called eagle and phoenix dam and it sta- starts with a a reference to william carlos williams who was actually um a uh an md uh, he was a family doctor and his good friend, the poet Ezra Pound, referred to him as Old Doc Williams. And so uh, he lived uh, around Old Mill Towns in New Jersey, and he makes reference to them in uh, his most famous book, Spring and All. So there's a reference to him at the beginning of this poem. The other thing is that uh, uh, when they blew the dam um, to, to create the whitewater rafting, 
uh, it was really fascinating because they found all of this stuff below the mill pond or below the original dam uh, once they drained the mill pond um, that was like a history of Columbus um, in these items. And I actually, um, you know, archaeologists went out there and they, uh, they recovered all of these things and they describe what they found there. It's fascinating um, as a history. Um, and one of William Carlos Williams' uh, famous uh, statements about art is, uh, no idea but in things. He wanted his poems to be full, filled with things and whatever ideas they expressed was going to come out of those things. The poem is called Eagle and Phoenix Dam. One. Old Doc Williams dead. Down south, the river still stunk like a sewer, which it was. The mills, back alley die and mordant dump. Meanwhile, up the road in Opelika, Martin Ritt set the table to shoot Norma Ray. The irony of it apparent only now. Cotton mill culture had less than 20 years to live. Gone all that yelling about unions over the ear-splitting racket of spinners and looms. Sweating through your bra and panties. Reading thumbtacked bulletin boards on break. Lunging lint all day and slouching home to a company shack. No revelations but in things. Two. The midday blast rattled the glass and made the old mill tremble. A civic spectacular viewable via the dam cam on the internet. When the dust and smoke subsided, the flume of brick red run its course in the river current. What was left was a ragged hole in the heart of 1880s engineering. The Chattahoochee freed at least of this one shackle, a hundred and fifty years of mill culture drained out of the reservoir. The flow of blood, sweat, and tears released. The gash ripped open. Then returned a nasty stench, the sulfurous must of decay mixed with riverbed mud, dead fish, cotton mill chemicals, and such as the dam kept hid until the breach brought everything out in the open. The stink stuck around about a month, then slowly dissipated, vanished into air. But from the powerhouse, looking down, heart pine timbers from trees sprouted in the 1600s and felled in the 19th century lay like a jumble of matchsticks studded with discarded car parts, shopping carts, scuttled craft, dozens of fire extinguishers, the evolution of coke, RC, and knee-high as told through glass bottles, used tires, toys, tools, cans, clothing, coins, copper pots, cell phones, horseshoes, a trumpet, and a gold ring engraved Gloria, iron spikes, wooden kegs of lead-based paint, stoneware jugs of shine and cider, apothecary and cosmetic jars, a large number of handguns and knives apparently tossed from the 13th Street Bridge, a crucible, acetylene tanks briefly mistaken for cannon barrels, and a tangled timeline of lost fishing gear huddled under the old head race like so much archaeological swag, the lingerings of which the river at long last would have the pleasure to wash away. Meanwhile, three. Now that you are here, amid crag and gleam, mist rise and vapor, dark jade frothing into white lace, here where the rains come to gargle, spit jets of spray, see herons creep, smokestacks peer through high windows, spirits sleep, spool and spindle, shaft and shackle, tie snake and eagle, Sit still as the old powerhouse and mind your moorings, the river roaring. <laughs>